The book or letter of Revelation is the only one in the entire Bible that comes with a guaranteed blessing. You are absolutely, positively guaranteed to be blessed in this book. John writes in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So I want to ask you so far, we're through chapter 1, have you been blessed? Well, that's not very encouraging. (laughs) Have you been blessed? I mean, if you have, speak up. If you haven't, please, by all means, keep quiet. I have been. I have been incredibly blessed and going through this. Yes, I've I've been through it before. We've been through it before. but, But my goodness, I have been overwhelmingly blessed. And reminded that the public proclamation of the words of this book are a blessing and personal comprehension. For all of us, it's a blessing because it brings about daily sanctification. This is a marvelous, remarkable, incredible, amazing letter. And the revelation of Jesus Christ is, as I spoke about on Sunday, a revelation to the church. Don't forget that. Just as there are 66 books in the Bible and one revelation, so there are seven letters here, but one church. Letters to the church. Jesus said on that Thursday night of His betrayal, John 17, verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. And so here we are. The church. In the church age. Can you think about how amazing that is? That we are the church? We read about the church and what took place, for example, in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago. Hey, that's us. We're still in it. In it to win it, you might say. But we are all the church. Don't talk about the church in the third person. It's not them. It's us. It's we. It's all of us who still follow Jesus in this age of grace, this season that He called in chapter 1, verse 19, after saying, write the things which you have seen, the things which are. We are in the age of the things which are. And John, you know, saw Jesus who instructed him to write the things which he had seen. What had John seen? At this point... Shout it out. Jesus glorified. Glorified Jesus. John had seen Him. Jesus said, write that down. I want them to see Me. You saw Me. I want them to see Me. I want My church to get the same picture of Me that that you have, John, that you have just seen. Write it down. Man, glorified, glorious Jesus. And where was He? He's walking among what? Lampstands. The church. Some people said church, some said that you're all right. The seven golden lampstands. And he's walking about with seven stars in his right hand. And then John sees him. Jesus says, write what you've seen. And then Jesus says, write the things which are the church. The church age. 
And it is marvelous to pause and consider that all that has happened across 2,000 years, we are in that. We are part of that. You know, sometimes we can be tempted to look back and say, oh yeah, John and Peter and Paul, the apostles, men like Irenaeus. I just like saying Irenaeus. Tertullian, you know, those first and second century guys. Oh, the Spurgeons, the D.L. Moody's. We can look back and, and start to name these names. Amy Carmichael, these great names. By the way, there are some good books out that say that are titled like A Hundred Christians Every Christian Should Know. Get one of those books. You will be so encouraged to read about some of these people across time. You might not even know some of the names. Alexander McLaren. I mean, amazing people who lived amazing lives of simple faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And guess what? That's us. That's us now as much as it was then. We are still the church. And we are still in the church age. And so John is told to address the angels and the lampstands in seven cities through seven letters here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Letters that are written historically. We talked about this Sunday. Let me remind you. These are historical letters. Local letters, if you will. Written to these seven local churches. Actual, literal churches. These letters are, however, also written corporately. That is, to the complete church. Which is why they're to seven. Seven being that number of completion. God intended, Jesus intended, the entire church to read, to heed, and to listen to and act upon the things in these letters. Corporately. But these letters also have an impact on a personal level, personally, to members of the church. I realize I will never be a Charles Spurgeon. First of all, I don't smoke a cigar. I'm not English. I won't be a D.L. Moody. I won't be some of these heroes of faith. I'm just Rick. But I'm in this church. And these letters, oh, these letters are personal. To everyone who is a member of the church. How do I become a member? We had a, um, a newcomer's fellowship on Sunday night, which I really enjoyed. I always enjoy that because I get to see people and put names with the faces. And, and we talked and we shared and we looked back at the, the story of this fellowship, talked about it again. And we came to that issue of membership. And I love telling people we don't have one. Because you are already a member. The Lord adds daily to His church Day by day, those who are being saved. Acts 2.47 He adds to His church, membership is through the blood of Jesus Christ into the church by faith in Jesus Christ. God does that. We're just a fellowship. It doesn't make us better or worse than any other church. You just don't have to sign on the dotted line because you see Jesus signed on the dotted line with His blood. So you trust Him. And everyone who's a member of that, personally, these letters are written to you. Corporately, to the whole church. Historically, to those seven churches in Asia. And finally, prophetically. Because these seven letters span the entire age of the church. Overlaid across 2,000 years, we can see this pan out. Prophetically. All of it was prophetic to John, with perhaps the exception of Ephesus. Because... It was at that time frame. You see, Ephesus is the apostolic church. That is the church of the first century, A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. That's Ephesus. 
And the letter speaks to problems going on in the entire church at that season in the church age. And John was in that. But then Smyrna. Smyrna is written to the persecuted or the suffering church. A.D. 100-312, we see the church in suffering unlike any other time in history. Pergamus, the state church. A.D. 312-606. And these churches were all, you know, there's a prophetic message here. These letters written and would speak to these different seasons. Now as for you and for me, the first three are rooted in history. Those three iterations, if you will, versions, if you will, or forms of the church are no longer in play. The last four are still in existence. I'm going over this because some questions came up after Sunday. Think of it this way. Think with me. When the first century closed with John, the last surviving apostle, that was it for the apostolic church. Something was going to change. And something truly did. As the church then entered this time of crushing persecution, which is spoken about in the letter to Smyrna. Well, then things eased up a bit. The comfortable, political, state church. I am not a fan of the idea of America being a Christian nation. I prefer it to be a nation of Christians. That would be fantastic. But I don't like the marrying of politics and church. And you'll see why when we get to Pergamos. None of those iterations exist today. None of those forms of the church are in play. But what we do see is the last four. Thyatira, the idolatrous church, about 606 A.D. to present. Sardis, the dead church. You've seen them. Maybe you attended one or two. 1520 to present. Philadelphia, the faithful church, which we saw ignite around 1750 all the way to present. Still still going on. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. These versions, forms of the church still in play. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church from about 1900 to present. Where are you getting those dates, Rick? We'll talk about that with each one as we come to each letter. But understand that all of the last four are still represented on earth today. Why? Because all four are referred to by Jesus eschatologically. Eschatology is the study of the end times. It's from the Greek word. And and to talk about things that are eschatological or eschatological, that means stuff that's happening at the very end. And Jesus says to Thyatira, I'm warning you, you're going to go, some of you are going to go into tribulation. That's at the end of the age. Sardis is alerted not to sleep through the rapture. Wake up! You're going to miss it! Philadelphia is guaranteed by Jesus to be caught up in the rapture. And Laodicea? (laughs) In Laodicea, a doorbell chimes. There's a knocking at the door. A dinner invitation comes with the knocking as suddenly, after Laodicea, we will see a door standing open in heaven. So all four of these last letters have an end times appeal in them. And as we go through and get to all all these churches, just remember this. Jesus loves them all. Jesus loves Philadelphia. And Jesus loves Laodicea. And Jesus loves Thyatira. And He loves Sardis. As much as He loved Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos. Jesus just loves His church. 
And the first letter, which we come to now tonight, chapter 2, verse 1, goes out to darling Ephesus. Ephesus means darling or desirable one. So this is a love letter of sorts, if you will. Chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. The first thing Jesus does is he begins by telling darling Ephesus, reminding his sweetheart, if you will, of one component or a couple of small components of his larger character. Components of his character. Bridge Lampstand, let me ask you a question, because Jesus says he's the one who holds the seven stars. He's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let me ask you, as a lampstand ourselves, if we can compare ourselves to a lampstand, or say that God has his lampstand in this church, do you want to stay lit? Now, I'm not using the phrase like, you know, party slang. Dude, that's really lit. It's totally lit. That's stupid because when it's used like that, those parties end up dark and the flame flames out. Talk about lamps or a lamp as a fellowship that is trimmed and lit and burning bright. Do you want to be that kind of a fellowship? See, I do. I desire that. Uh, not to be known on Whidbey Island as, oh yeah, yeah, the, the church has made a name for itself. No. See, we'll find out with Sardis, you don't want to make a name for yourself. We want to make his name known to everyone. Sorry, fly. We want to make his name known and to be bright and burning. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Are we? Church of the last days, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14, a city on a hill can't be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the kind of lit I want to be. And that's what we're called to. But why does Jesus choose this component of his character for Ephesus? Hey, those stars, Jesus might say. Those angelos messengers, they're in my right hand. And I'm the one who is walking among the lampstands, he says to Ephesus. You might term it this way, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I hold the stars. I move among the lampstands. And as we'll see, the church at Ephesus needed to be reminded of who Jesus is. They also need to be reminded as part of this of what their assembly, or maybe better, who their assembly was all about. I think that's why Jesus starts every letter with a component of his character to remind each church who we're to be about. I wonder what he would say to the Bridge Fellowship. I don't have an answer for that, but I wonder. How would he describe himself to us? How do we need to see Jesus in this season? To Ephesus, he says, man, I'm the one with the stars in my hand, and I'm the one that is in the church. To stay lit as a lampstand, we need trimming. And that begins by remembering why the lampstand was set up in the first place. So think with me about Ephesus. Travel with me to Ephesus. It was the centerpiece of Greek culture. 
Ephesus, there on the western shores of what is Turkey today, southwestern Turkey. A centerpiece of Greek culture and knowledge and education. It boasted all kinds of schools of philosophical thought and discussion and intellect. You might remember the school of Tyrannus was set up there. Paul rented it out in the afternoons when everybody was taking a siesta because it got so hot. No air conditioning, but Paul was renting it out for Bible study and people were showing up and getting trained up there. That's in Acts chapter 19, there in Ephesus. It had a large, active, culturally rich metropolitan area. In fact, Ephesus was called the Light of Asia. Interesting. The Light of Asia, why would they need a lampstand? They're already the Light of Asia. Well, it... It was the light of Asia, but the dark center of idolatry and paganism in the world. In fact, it housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the famed Temple of Artemis. Temple of Diana. Nearly four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So if you've ever seen the Parthenon, quadruple that, and you have the Temple of Diana. Pillars there, 127 pillars held up. The temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis. Each one of those pillars, 60 feet high. So it was massive. Filled with all kinds of sculptures and pagan structures decked out. And because it was the center of of Artemis worship, Diana worship, well, it was the center of sexual immorality, because to worship Diana, you had sex with one of the priestesses. That's how it worked. Right there in Ephesus. Arnold uh, Gabelline, in his commentary on Acts, said Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. Books containing formulas for sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in Ephesus. And Jesus placed a lampstand right there. Set one up. To be a light in a dark place. See, that's what he does. They thought they were the light of Asia. They were complete and utter darkness. So the lampstand went there. Jesus is always purposeful when he places a fellowship or a church. Always. I have said for years it made no sense to me to plant a church on North Whidbey Island. Except that we knew that we knew that we knew this is right where Jesus wanted us to be. Why? Why here? And this is with appreciation and recognition of other lampstands that are right here on the island. But why any of us? Why a church on North Whidbey Island? Well, it's interesting. Naval personnel call Whidbey Island the rock. Right? You guys remember this? The rock. Remember what Jesus said? Upon this rock I will build my church. It's perfect. He was talking about us. So many naval personnel start here and they end up coming back here over and over and they end up here. That's part of the reason they call it the rock, not just because it's an island, but Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And I'll tell you something, this lampstand, this fellowship was placed on this rock for a purpose. And it is to stay lit. What use is a lampstand that is not lit? We are called to be bright and shining a city on a hill and you can't be a city on a hill and do some of the stuff that we do dark stuff pagan Ephesus was a dark place they needed a bright shining 
lampstand. The only way we can accomplish the purpose that Jesus has for this fellowship here on North Whidbey Island is to stay lit. So how do we stay lit? Well, <laughs> we need oil. Keep your finger in Revelation 2 and go back to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. It's at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. Second to last book of the Older Testament. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, it's an interesting vision. Zechariah is filled with visions. I don't have time to go into all those right now. But really graphic depictions that the Lord gives Zechariah to paint pictures and help him understand what's going on and speak to the people. And chapter 4 is stunning. It tells us that the angel, verse 1, who was speaking with me, returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which were on the top of it, and and also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other on its left side. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my lord? Now understand, Zachariah knew what the lampstand was. That, that was something he would be, as a good Jew, he would be aware of. Lampstand in the temple, you know, with its seven candles, and its, and its lamps on each one, each filled with oil, each burning. That, that would be typical to a Jew. What he didn't understand was all the other stuff. This big bowl, and these seven spouts, and these two olive trees. What is this a picture of? What's this a vision of, he says. And, the, and by the way, he says, what are these, my Lord? He's not talking to any angel. This is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, in my opinion. And he says, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Skip down to verse 11. I hate to skip, but do it. Verse 11. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? And he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. <laughs> Well, if it was me, I'd be getting a little frustrated by then. I have no idea. Tell me. And then he said in verse 14, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Get this. Understand this. In the immediate circumstance, in the immediate context, the two olive trees represented Joshua, who was the current high priest over the returned exiles of Judah, and Zerubbabel, which is a great name. Any of you ladies who are pregnant, you might want to apply that name. You throw that out just to your husband. What do you think about Zerubbabel? You can call him Babel for short. Anyway, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the new governor of Jerusalem, having come back with the people. Now understand this. These are the olive trees. How does that work? To fill the lamps of the lampstand, to keep the lampstand lit, the two olive trees themselves had to be filled. 
filled with the Spirit, that they might continually, through the work of the Spirit, be pouring the oil into the lamps to keep the lampstand burning. What's interesting here is he says, these are the two anointed ones there in verse 14. Anointed ones is Bene Yitzhar, which is translated, these are the two sons of oil. I like that. Oh, to be a son of oil. Or a daughter of oil. Less, you know how he, he's always packing. He's always carrying around a little vial of oil. I mean, he, careful, he'll anoint you and you don't even know what's happening until he's halfway through. He keeps threatening to bring a bucket of oil and just dump it on someone. So some Sunday look forward to that. Sons of oil. Daughters of oil. People who themselves are so filled, like Joshua and Zerubbabel, so filled with oil themselves that they are represented by olive trees. Pouring oil into the bowl, which pours oil into the spouts and then goes into the lampstand and keeps it lit. And it's a beautiful picture. They were conduits of the Holy Spirit. But the picture is bigger as much of prophecy is. Verse 14 again, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. The whole earth? Not just Judah. See, the Lord of the whole earth refers to the Creator God of Jew and Gentile alike. So Zerubbabel and Joshua, well, they were exclusive to Judah and the Jewish people. These, in this prophecy, are the two anointed ones who will come on the scene in the first half of the tribulation. They will prophesy from Jerusalem. They are also called my two witnesses. We will get to them in Revelation chapter 11. They are the two. How do we know? Because they stand by the Lord of the whole earth. They stand up before the whole earth. Revelation 11 verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And John writes, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So we're already reaching back. This whole picture of a lampstand, reaching back to the prophet Zechariah. And these two, these, these olive trees, these lampstands, these, these witnesses, these sons of oil, who are they? Well, we'll see that soon enough. Point is, to keep the lampstand lit, we have got to be filled not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We will not accomplish as a church fellowship what we have been formed and called to accomplish without the Spirit of the living God so entrenched in us that we become like olive trees, sons and daughters of oil. Now watch this. Back to Ephesus. Uh, Don't go back to Revelation 2. Go instead to Acts chapter 19 and let's understand a little bit about why Jesus is the one moving among the lampstands. Why he refers to himself as the one holding the stars and and walking among the golden lampstands. Why a lampstand is so vital in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19. And the Apostle Paul, while you're turning there, the Apostle Paul had visited Ephesus briefly on his second missionary journey. And a stopped in. He was uh, accompanied at that time by Aquila and Priscilla. They met a man named Apollos there. So Paul left them there and, and they began working with Apollos and Paul headed back 
to the east, but then he returns on his third missionary journey, and that is when the lampstand got lit in Ephesus. Watch this, Acts 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, he had headed on down to Corinth at that point, or across to Corinth, uh, that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Remember, this is the letter we're going to be studying to Ephesus. He found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, let's stop there for a minute. Why would he ask that question? I think Paul saw something. He's talking with them. Something's missing. Their disciples, their followers, as it were, their believers, something's, something's missing. Did, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he said. And they said to him, well, no. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Reminds me of my upbringing. And verse 3 he said, Into what then were you baptized? You see, in Acts chapter 2, Peter made the comment, Repent and believe and you and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're baptized into Jesus, so a process begins. You know, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. So who were you baptized into? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, oh, okay, now it's making sense. John's baptism, or he baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Well, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I like these guys. They didn't say, well, that's not the way my parents raised me. Well, I'm sorry, I was already baptized into John's baptism. No, they say, oh, we missed something? There's something else? I'm in. Where do I sign up? Where do I get wet? So they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's how we still baptize today. Jesus said baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and what? And the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity. I shouldn't share this, but I'm going to. Is Cam in here? She's not. Okay, good. I can talk about her. She, uh, <laughs> a couple of Sundays, three Sundays ago, I think it was, um, baptized someone over here, and, and it was it was beautiful. She baptized Monica. Where's Monica's back there? Yeah. And, and it was so cool. Cam's in the water. She's baptizing Monica. And you're recording this so you can show Cam, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, baptizes Monica... And as she's laying her in the water, she says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So I thought, I'm standing up here, I thought, King James, all right. That's pretty cool. Later in the day, she texts me, I don't know why I said Holy Ghost. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you? You know. But because of that, she has now gained the nickname Boo around the staff. So if you see Cam, she's Boo. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. The Spirit of the Lord. The olive trees filled with the Spirit that keeps the lampstand lit. You know where I'm going with this. These guys finally get baptized, verse 5. And in verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. came on them. They were filled with the Spirit in their baptism. Now the Spirit comes on them when Paul laid his hands on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. Interesting. Well, wait a minute now. 
Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that you need to repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we see in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his family, Peter's in the middle of preaching, droning on and on and on, as some preachers can do. And suddenly, suddenly, Cornelius and his entire family, the Holy Spirit comes upon them before they're baptized. Well, that's completely out of order. And now, these guys in Ephesus are baptized in the name of Jesus so they can be filled with the Spirit. But Paul has to lay hands on them afterwards. And when he does, they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy. I don't like that speaking in tongues thing. That makes me a little uncomfortable. had a conversation just this last week with someone who was completely turned off from the gifts of the Spirit because he or she was raised in an environment where that was just constant. You know, just, just where it was just radical. And he got so uncomfortable with it, he just walked away from it completely for a long time. So what's going on here? Well, for one thing, understand that if you look at all the moments in the book of Acts where someone gives their life to Jesus, they're born again, and then they receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, every single situation is different. Every single one. There's not one conversion situation in the book of Acts that's the same as all the rest. I love that. That's just so cool. God keeps it fresh. (laughs) Les likes to say there are as many ways of being baptized in the Spirit as there are people. Because God's personal. But, But back to it. God was in this moment, He was confirming to them that His Spirit was in them. They were baptized. They come out of the water. Spirit fills them. Paul prays for them, lays hands on them. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And i got to ask the question, what was the proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on these twelve in Ephesus? What was the proof? What is the proof? What's the proof that you have the Holy Spirit come upon you? Is it tongues? There are those that say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. The Bible doesn't say that. Is it miracles? Is it the ability to prophesy? How is the light of the Spirit manifested or, or seen in the church? That's a great question, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute. But keep it in the back of your mind. Paul, after this experience in, in Acts 19, stayed on in Ephesus for a full three years, longer than anywhere else in any of his other missionary journeys. He would stay months in some places, a year or two in others, but at Ephesus, it was three full years. He just stayed, and he stayed, and he stayed. There he taught. In fact, we know that he taught the whole of Scripture. Man, he took them through everything. In three years, I'm impressed. Of course, he did it every day. You know, I only had Sundays and Wednesdays, which is why it took us 15. Three years! And he went through the whole of Scripture. And if you skip over to Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Acts 20, verse 27. Paul has now left and he's on his way back to Jerusalem and he doesn't stop in at Ephesus. He knows if he does, he'll never leave because he just loves them so much. But he stops off at a place called Miletus and he says to the elders of Ephesus, come meet me, I want to see you one last time. So they go over to Miletus, they meet Paul there, and in verse 27 he's talking to them and he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose, the whole counsel, if you will, of God. And he says, listen, be on guard for yourselves 
and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who made them overseers? The Holy Spirit. To shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's prophetic, gang. That was a prophetic word that Paul is speaking at that time about what was coming for Ephesus. He says, therefore, be on the alert, verse 31. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You think Paul felt these things passionately? Bursting into tears as he's teaching the Word of God? I mean, this meant something to Paul. And he says, Now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build up and to give the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And down in verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud, and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Reminds me of some of our shepherds' meetings. So embarrassing. No, I mean, these guys loved each other, right? There was deep affection here, deep brotherly affection. And they were grieving, especially over the word which he had spoken, verse 38, that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. And so Ephesus, there's the planting, there's the establishing of of the lampstand. These twelve receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 19, the meeting with the shepherds. By the time Paul has left there, they've got elders, they've got an established fellowship, the lampstand is lit and it's bright, and Paul says, watch out, because some are going to try and put it out. Some are going to come up from right in the midst of you. And so Ephesus braced for attack from without and from within. Now go back to the letter, Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus goes on to give a confidence-boosting commendation to the church at Ephesus. That's the second thing He does. He gives components of His character in every letter, and then He gives a confidence-boosting commendation And he does it to Ephesus for their fierce commitment to the truth. This is the church that had to be on guard against the wolves. And so Jesus says in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. John talked about these guys in another letter. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so it would be shown that they are not all of us. And so Jesus says, good for you, Ephesus. Well done. You're persevering. You're hanging tough. You're doctrinally sound. You're guarding against the wolves. You're fighting back against this. Excellent. And note, he says this, you have perseverance, verse 3, and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Fantastic. We even know what their intentions were. Their intentions? Yeah, why they tested apostles or people who came saying they were apostles. Why they didn't tolerate evil at Ephesus. What was their intention? For his name's sake. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are not going to put up with sinful flesh. We're not going to tolerate that stuff. 
Oh, that more churches in the name of Jesus Christ in America today would not tolerate evil. Rather, we see so many churches embracing it because we feel like if we don't, we're going to be called intolerant. Good job, Ephesus. Way to go. This is a church that had embraced the original challenge of Paul. In fact, after Paul, ultimately, his protege Timothy was sent to Ephesus to stay there and to tend and trim the lampstand there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Go, teach them. Stay there, Timothy. Ephesus needs you. The lamp needs to be bright. It's a dark region. But listen, get this. In verse 5 of that same letter, Paul to Timothy, he says, But the goal of our instruction is what? Love. Teenagers in the back, listen to me. The goal of our instruction is not getting it all right. It's love. If you guys get that now, it will change your lives. If you miss it, you got a lot to go through before you get to where some of us are. The goal of our instruction is love. Love. Back to the question. What is the proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How is the light manifested in the church or in the Christian life? Love. That's how you know someone has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're going to be more loving. They're going to be filled with that love of God. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians, don't turn there, just listen. Chapter 12, verse 29. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing. And all do not speak with tongues. And all do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Because if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I become a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, oh, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge... I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. You can claim to be baptized, washed, sanctified in the Holy Spirit of the living God, but if you don't have love, it ain't true. Because the single greatest proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a church fellowship or in an individual person's life is love. It's love. It's love. And you know what? For a long time, I thought love was just Sunday school. Oh yeah, love. Let's move on to the deeper truths. Oh yeah, love. Let's get into the the real nitty-gritty of Scripture and let's find out some cool prophecy stuff. Love? Love's the proof. And it's interesting to me that from Jerusalem to Rome, of all the lampstands in the entire first century, that John, the apostle of love himself, ended up at Ephesus. We know that from really good, solid historical evidence. John was stationed at Ephesus. Paul was there teaching the truth. 
Timothy was there supporting that truth and saying that the goal of our instruction is love. And then John is sent there who said in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Let it be seen in us. And all the Bible teaching and all the knowledge in all the world is worthless if it doesn't produce love. If we, as a fellowship, don't end up loving each other more, if we don't find ourselves loving the unlovely, if love isn't what's going on here, what are we doing? We can think our lampstand is so bright, but if there is no love, the oil is drying up. Love is the key. So Jesus continues with Ephesus and He gives a concerted criticism. This is the third component. A concerted criticism. Now, if you wrote some notes on Sunday, I'm changing that one. Because on Sunday, I gave you the five-point outline that we can use in every letter. That is, a component of His character, a, a confident commendation, and then I said, number three, a corrective condemnation, And then number four, a clear correction. And number five, a coming confirmation. Do you see why I need to change number three? That is a corrective condemnation. You see, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, my bad. There is no condemnation. Now, there may very well be a concerted criticism, but listen, Jesus will not condemn you. I love that about Him. I love the fact that as many times as I have messed it up in my life, when He has had to criticize me, I've never felt condemned. Not by Him. Condemnation is not an aspect of love. Critiquing? Discipline? Absolutely. So we come to what I would call a concerted criticism that critiques without condemning because Jesus disciplines those whom He loves. Verse 4. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. They didn't lose it. They didn't misplace it. They didn't fall out of it. I've told you before, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in all my life. The idea of falling out of love, you don't fall out of love, you walk away from it. Or as as Jesus says to Ephesus, you'll leave it. You leave it. You fall out of it. I just don't love her anymore. Well, then go love her. I don't love him anymore. Well, then start practicing love for him. And in our marriages, and in our families, that's absolutely key. It's, it's completely simple. Almost so simple it's stupid. You don't love someone? Practice love for them. And you will find the feelings will come back. So, they had left their first love. Just left it behind. Part of how they did that we're going to talk about on Sunday. But the word left is aphiomai. And it means to depart or to forsake, to leave, to disregard. And it is used of a husband divorcing his wife, aphiomai. Interesting, it's no generic love that they left here. It's not even brotherly love. What Jesus is citing is they left their first agape. Kotos agape is how it looks in the Greek. 
They left their first agape. That is the original, unconditional love of God that is seen in us as we love each other. They'd walked away from it. This was not a loving church. Solid, yes. Doctrinally sound, absolutely. Sure of the Word, mm-hmm. but not loving. And there's some lampstand problems going on. Interesting, Paul wrote to Ephesus in the letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he said, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention in my prayers. Because at one time, the church in Ephesus was a loving church. Jesus or Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.17 that He grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may, may be filled up to the fullness of God. Oh, they had had teaching about love and instruction to love. Paul even closes out the Ephesian letter in chapter 6, verse 23 saying, Peace be to the brethren and listen, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love with faith. I love that because love with faith is love with trust. Faith and trust, same thing. You don't have love without having trust. And you really don't have trust unless there's love involved. Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that faith works through love. That's how it works. You don't have faith unless you have love for it to work in and through. And of course, John said in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. All that to say that for Ephesus, the light of the lampstand was growing dim. Because the love had been left. So Jesus brings a clear correction. Verse 5, Therefore, and you can apply this personally in a very profound way, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. Very simple, very practical. Remember, repent, return, if you will, to the deeds that you did at first, or I will remove. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and return to doing the first deeds. Remember what? No, not what. Who? Remember who? This is a love issue. Well, okay, but repent of what? No. Not what? Whom? Repent to whom? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Return to doing the first deeds for what? Not for what? (laughs) For whom? Because of the removal of what? Not what? Whom? The removal of the lampstand. The warning here, don't miss this. 
the warning is the removal of the Holy Spirit of the living God. If you don't return to this love, if you don't recognize the love relationship we have, I'm going to remove the lampstand. We have some examples of that. At least one horrifying example. Remember King Saul? God poured out His Spirit on Saul. Saul was anointed. Saul was a kind of a big dumb guy. But he had the Spirit for a time until he began acting and functioning against the will of God and against his next anointed David. As Saul begins to throw spears and get all wrapped up in himself, God removed His Holy Spirit from Saul and put His Spirit on David. And Saul ended up wracked with demonic attack for the rest of his days. What a mess. We have David himself who knew that and who when discovered of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and all that had taken place falls down and cries out, Psalm 51.11, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. The lampstand. Jesus will not allow a lampstand to remain where the love of Christ has been left. If we as a fellowship leave the love of Christ in how we treat each other and in how we react to God, we could lose the lampstand. I I read about this. uh, A picture of this actually kind of came up in the news just today. Maybe you read the story about the 72-year-old Sacramento woman who's digging in the street right outside her church. Apparently underneath their church there was a, a water main or something that had busted because they were starting to get leakage into this church. church has been there for a long decade upon decade. And she's worried and she's out there digging to try and figure out because the water company says, ah, that's your problem. And as the article told us, she, she said... I don't want this church to die because I think it's really important to the neighborhood. And her attitude is absolutely right. And then I read further. The church is down to about 20 members. You see a picture of this church. It's a big church. It's a Fruitfield Christian church, I believe, in Sacramento. Big church. Probably one time had a large membership. Lots of people involved. Lots of activity, things going on. Families blessed. The Bible taught. And now there's about 20 people huddled there. And they can't afford the $10,000 plumber's bill to fix the problem. So she's out there digging. I was torn. I was like, I got to call together the finance team and see if we can send them a check for ten grand and get this done. And I read more. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know... Sometimes God removes a lampstand. I've seen Him do it. Oh, I don't mean literally like I saw a big hand come out of the sky and move. I, I have seen churches die out. And we fight it, you know. Oh, no, no, no. we got to keep the dead horse alive. And it is dead. Why do churches die? Why don't they live? Why aren't they bright and vibrant? Because they've left their first love. And when you leave the love, the proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit is ignored. Leave the love, ignore the Spirit, and the church will die. Ephesus did. 
Oh, it took a little while. It was a slow downhill. But about the 4th century, there was no longer even a church in Ephesus. In fact, of all the seven churches, I think only one still has a presence in its city. A church will die where the Spirit is ignored. Now, the 72-year-old sacramental woman who's out there digging in the street and trying to fix this underground leak, she also added this in the article. She said, I don't think you can find a person that can love a church and God as much as I have all my life. And that's really sweet. But the truth is, I know of one who loves the church more than she does. If you're having love trouble with Jesus and what I mean by that is if you're not feeling it you know your relationship with Jesus seems to be dry you know maybe you're here tonight because you're thinking I'll go one more time maybe that'll spark something if you feel like the lamp is dim in your life and what was once passionate with Jesus just doesn't seem to be so much anymore do verse 5 Just do it. Remember from where you've fallen. What does that mean? It means remember Jesus. He's the one we leave. When we leave our first love, we leave Him. He is our first love. He's the reason any of us ever got into this whole church business in the first place. Remember Him. And repent. That is, turn around. Turn to Him. And return. That is, do the deeds that you did at first. Just do what you did before. Just go back. As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Do you remember how excited you were? Remember how joyful you were when it all began? Do that. Go back to it. Because there is a danger of the lampstand being removed. Oh, I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation. I think there are going to be some really depressed Christians who are caught up in the rapture and in sudden joy like they haven't known for years. But why would you want to live that way? Why would any of us want to live dry, cold, and bored, and dim when we could be bright? A lampstand literally on fire. Well, Jesus does turn back around for Ephesus. He loves Ephesus. Yes, He has to critique them. Yes, He's calling them back. But He's calling them back because He loves them. And so He says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We've been talking about love, and He says that? Is there an aspect of hate in love? Yes, there is. If you love with the love of Jesus Christ, you hate anything that causes people not to love. You hate unrighteousness. You hate the flesh that fights against the Spirit. You hate anything that would steal away the joy of the Spirit, that would steal eternal life. You hate that stuff. So there is room for hate in love. Hating anything that is destructive, or thieving, or killing. A thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that you might have life. He says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Okay, quickly, who are they? Understand that first love Christianity always hates the deeds of unrighteousness. These Nicolaitans were an unrighteous lot. 
and they showed up very early in the church. This is 95, remember. And heresy has already begun to take a foothold in different locations. And the Nicolaitans are named a couple of times in Revelation, here and also later in the message to, I believe, Pergamum. They'll be called out, so we'll look more at them at that time. But here's some background. There was a man whose name was Nicholas, and he was no saint. Nicholas. Irenaeus claimed that Nicholas was one of the seven chosen men of Acts chapter 6, verse 5. You can see his name listed there. Irenaeus was very close to this time frame, in about 150 to 180, somewhere in there. So there's really a good possibility that the Nicholas of the Nicolaitans was one of those seven men chosen as outstanding men to take care of the widow's food distribution in Acts chapter 6. Same guy, Nicholas. He's from Antioch. Guess what? The Nicolaitans were founded in Antioch and began a cult that started to teach that for a person to understand sin, they had to do it. To, to, To fully comprehend, you know, what sin was all about. And they also taught an early form of what was called Gnosticism that really came up in the second century. They also taught that spirit and flesh were separate, so sexual sin does not affect the spirit of a person. And guess what? The church believes that today. How can you say that, Rick? I'm not saying the church teaches it. I'm saying the behavior of Christians holds that up today. Oh, I can commit sexual sin and it's not going to affect me spiritually. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And it will affect you, body, soul, and spirit. Sexual immorality, which is, by the way, I've you know, clearly defined here as any sex outside, outside of marriage. Any sex outside of the marital union of a man and a woman is sexual immorality and it will harm your spirit and it will make the lamp go dim in your life the Nicolaitans didn't think so they thought it was great people are still trying to dissociate flesh and spirit what I do with my flesh on a Friday night doesn't affect my spirit on a Sunday morning and it's the lie of the enemy and I'm not saying that to condemn you or anyone who may have walked that way I'm condemning the enemy who tries to convince us that it's cool that it's fine that you can live a dual life you can't do it and be alive and alight with the spirit of God can't do it the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitis, Nico, where we get the word Nike, conqueror or destroyer. Laity, the people, common people. So the Nicolaitans, it meant to conquer or destroy the people. With that in mind, listen again to how Jesus describes himself back in verse 1. I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What's the connection? Listen, Jesus has the authority, and Jesus holds, but he does not crush. He holds, but does not crush. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. 
And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. He holds, He doesn't crush. In Jesus' hands there is security, not shackles. And it's the opposite with the Nicolaitans, and it's the opposite with anyone who would preach flesh over spirit. Shackles, chains. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Liberty. There's freedom. There's what? Freedom? To live a life that is actually free? The church, the people where the lampstand is lit by love, knows what freedom is. We know freedom in Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. And that's why back when the bridge started years ago, Les and I began to talk and hold up a phrase. It's a phrase we have used many times over the years. Hold people with an open hand. Hold them with an open hand. And we apply that all over the place. If someone comes to the fellowship, we're so glad you're here. We hold you with an open hand. If you want to leave and go somewhere else, that's fine too. Hold people with an open hand. Because Jesus is the one who holds the stars. He's the one walking among the lampstands. And love doesn't crush and shackle and chain up. No, love. Love brings security. So we read this letter historically. Ephesus had a love problem. We read it corporately. All the church. We've got to remember our first love. We read it personally. Knowing the love that you knew at first. Man, remember, repent, return. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Historically, corporately, personally. And we read about Ephesus prophetically. Because again, it speaks of the apostolic church of the first century. And by the time John is writing this letter, the apostolic church was in serious danger of leaving their first love. I mean, think about that. It had only been 60 years since Jesus had ascended to heaven. It had only been 30 years since Ephesus began under Paul. I started to think about that for a church that's been here 15 years. It doesn't take long to leave your first love. It doesn't take much for a church to walk away from the love relationship of Jesus Christ. As I shared, for its first century fervor, darling Ephesus eventually fizzled and faded. Right now, today, Ephesus is ruins. And all the cities around there, there's there's no Christian presence. That lampstand was removed. That light went out. But the letter does end with a very positive coming confirmation. An eschatological end times promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we're going to look at verse 7 on Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Father, Lord Jesus,
Spirit of the living God. As we sang earlier, fall afresh on us. Draw us into the place of Your love. Help us to remember, O Lord, to remember our first love. Father, help us to love You more than we love ourselves, more than we love this world, more than we love the creature comforts of the flesh. Bring us into the presence of Your love. Thanks, Father, we know You put us here for a reason. It's not just to be another one of many. And we are not just here to feed our own desires. Father, I pray that the love we share would grow and expand in ways that only Your Holy Spirit can accomplish. And for that, we need the oil of Your Spirit. We need to be so filled that we are like olive trees. Jesus, I find myself in the place tonight of wanting to say more than I have words to say. I think perhaps because this is so important to You. Because Your passion is so much deeper even than words. And I ask You tonight, Holy Spirit, draw us into the place of Your deep passion. O Spirit of the living God, fight back the distractions of this world and focus and fix our eyes on Jesus. And help us, Lord. And where we have not shown love one to another, forgive us. We repent. And in fact, if you, as I pray, if you repent, just say that to the Lord in your heart tonight. I I repent, Lord, uh, of this relationship or that relationship where I have been unloving, where I have not expressed faith in You by loving my brothers and sisters. Oh Lord, expand our love for each other even as we love You more. And teach us. Teach us to love in the truth and to cling to the truth with love. And Father, I pray the lamps of this lampstand will be burning bright. We will remain lit for Jesus until You do call us home. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.